Hey, saying just welcome to week two in our pre-summer series out of the book of Esther called Glimpses of God. And even if you don't belong to our community, you're most welcome no matter where you are and no matter where you are in your journey. Now, the book of Esther is a real gift uh, to seekers, of course, to find out about our faith, but Christians even more because it's really teaching us how to live in this post-Christian, neo-pagan, divided moment, not only in our world, actually on the ground here in Canada. Now, as we get going again, let's remind ourselves of what we learned last week. This book is different than all the others in the Bible. Why? Well, it not only speaks into fear and uncertainty, it speaks powerfully into our languishing, but actually why it's fundamentally different is God is not mentioned. Not once in the whole book. Can't find him. There's not a messianic promise to be found. No person explicitly prays, reads the Bible, or even gives, let alone to the poor. God's word, God's law, is mentioned once, and it's hated when it's mentioned. The laws of the land, the secular state law, they're mentioned 14 times. So God feels distant or gone. God's law feels weak, and the culture feels in charge, overwhelming. There's no reference to the promised land, no reference to a temple, the temple, God's promises. They're just not there. And this takes place during a potential genocide of a religious minority, God's people. Now, we're not sure who wrote this book. Some think it's Mordecai, others Nehemiah. But what we do know is this. Esther was written after these events took place to Note this, encourage the people of God to give faith to the people of God, to help the people of God celebrate, to remind them, and to recalibrate them. So just write that down. Do you think you personally in our church and the church in Canada needs encouragement, needs faith, needs to learn how to celebrate again, to be reminded of God's work in, in our history again, to be recalibrated? Yes. And that's what Esther does for us. Also, as I pointed out last week, it was written to the Jewish community to learn how to laugh, to trust in the darkest of times. Okay, we enter back in the story, tons of money, preparing for a war against Greece, a queen's rebellion, a king's rage, a small minority of God's people in hiding in plain sight with no power. Esther 2.1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she, and what she had done and, and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem in the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The advice uh, pleased the king, and he followed it. Now, it was common for kings to have many wives and concubines, and then a primary wife. His dad, Darius I, had 360 concubines that lived in absolute luxury, but had to sleep with the king when he commanded. But he also had a primary, primary wife named Atosa. He loved her very much. But context in history is incredibly helpful. These women, though they were oppressed themselves, tended to get a better deal than many other women and even men in the courts. One of the most horrifying facts about the Persian court was this. 500 boys a year were castrated to serve as eunuchs in the Persian court. The, the point here is this. The king's power is absolute and affects everyone. So the work has begun to find this king a new queen. And unlike most kings that search by house or nobility, the king goes farther across the whole empire looking for beauty, not alliance. 
Verse 5, now there in the citadel of Susa was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So you've got a Jewish leader who lives among the exiles, who lives where the king's court currently is. Now, his grandfather had been brought here 100 years earlier on 597 BC. And don't miss this. Mordecai has never seen the promised land. Mordecai has never worshipped in the temple, never saw the temple. And yet, he is part of God's people in exile. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And by the way, it may, it may appear to you like some boring historical note, but it actually matters in this dark, overwhelming, God-silent moment. See, the tribe of Benjamin has a unique place in God's people. It was from Benjamin that the first king of Israel came. Saul was a Benjamite. Benjamin, the original one, was the only one of the patriarchs who was actually born physically in the Promised Land. When Israel used to go into battle, Benjamin, the tribe, would be in the front of them, and the war cry was, after thee, O Benjamin, we go. Okay, why does this matter? The point is, God's promises are real and are connected to this man's history. This man's history reminds us God is going to do what he promises. The God of Benjamin, the God of the Jews, is silent, but he is not absent. Let's not forget the Jewish exiles are now living in a diaspora-like experience, an immigrant experience across the Persian world. They're not in charge. They don't have freedom. They don't have the power of the state. They don't have religious freedom, but they had not forgotten the promises of God. I mean, what did God say to Jeremiah over a, a hundred years earlier? What, what happened at Ezra with Ezra is open to all of them. Jeremiah 29.10, this is what God says. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, the promised land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I will be found by you. I will bring you out of captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and place them, and I will, and from the places where I've banished you, I will bring you back to the place which I had carried you into exile. I love how so many people quote this verse, I have plans to prosper you, and it's their life verse, but they forget it's written to people in disobedience who actually God sent into captivity, and he's going to bring them back out of rebellion. God does not lie, though. I mean, that's the point. God cannot be stopped. God's will will happen. What he wills will happen. So back to the Persian court. Vashti now disappears from the scene and now enters Queen Esther. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah who had been brought up because he had brought up because she neither had father or mother. This young woman who was known as Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter for her father and mother had died. Okay. Maybe you've heard the story your whole life. Let this sit. Did you know Esther was an orphan? No mom, no dad, no homeland. She's now adopted. She's part of an ethnic religious minority. In other words, Esther's personal story is an embodiment of the whole Jewish community's experience and story. Well, it says in verse 8, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was in charge of his harem. She pleased him 
and won favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food, assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants to the best place in the harem. Now, notice this. In the book of Esther, Esther is the only person with two names, a Jewish name and a Persian name. She's literally living in tension between two worlds. Her Jewish name, by the way, means myrtle. Now, a myrtle is a shrub. It's a small tree. It's green. It has a very strong root system, and it's famous for actually growing even during drought and desert-like experiences. Even, uh, they tell us, if you cut it down to the stump, out of the root, it will sprout again every single time. Why does this matter? Esther's Jewish name reminds us of godly survival, a deep root system of faith that allows things to grow when they should not be able to grow, when everything is cut down and there is no water. But there's more. This plant has a very special place in the history and the festivals of the Jews. There was a festival, a yearly festival called the the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, this was to celebrate the coming out of Egypt, the exodus by God's God's own hand. God said that the Jews once a year need to leave their homes and live in tents made of branches. For seven days, Jews were called to celebrate the happy memories of God helping them during the exodus wanderings. It was to remind them how vulnerable they were and how God loved them and provided everything. Now, watch this. What were the tents made of? Well, we see it years later, even in Nehemiah's story, Nehemiah 8.15. Go out in the hill country and bring back branches from olive trees and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make the temporary shelters. So her Jewish name is connected to God and is connected to the celebration of God providing in the worst of times. God is our provider. The impossible only becomes possible through God. So her name reminds us of deep faith that allows growth when there's no water, when everything's been cut down and everything's impossible. Because of God, there's new life. But then she has a public name, a Persian name, Esther, which means star. It was connected to the goddess Ishtar, the famous Babylonian goddess of love and war. And this is exactly actually what Daniel had been through a century earlier. He had a Jewish name connected to the real God and real faith, and then a pagan name forced upon him. See, Persian names are directly connected to pagan idols and gods. The new names are given to eradicate Jewish cultural identity, to undermine Jewish faith. The names remove the name of the true living God and the true living God's work and promise, and they make other gods and other kings the center. This is indoctrination at the core of personality. So she'd grown up Jewish, learned the Torah her whole life, but now she's about to be placed in the most powerful, wealthiest world, the Persian court. Now she starts quiet, overwhelmed, seemingly weak, But over time, we will see she becomes faith-filled, brave, full of courage, and she is the one that God chose not only to save her own people in that time, she is the one that God chose to keep God's plan alive for the salvation of the whole world. So much is at stake in this moment. So Esther is now placed in the harem of the king. Now, generations later, by the way, Jewish and Christian leaders have been so angry at Mordecai for allowing this. 
One 15th century rabbi wrote this, Now when Mordecai heard that the king's herald announced that whoever had a daughter or sister should be brought to the kingdom and she would have to have sex with an uncircumcised heathen, why did he not risk his own life to take her away and hide her until the danger would pass? Why, why, why didn't he actually get killed rather than submit to such an act? Why would Mordecai not keep righteous Esther from idol worship? Why was he not more careful? Where was his righteousness, his piety, his valor? Even Esther, by right, should have tried committing suicide rather than allowing herself to have intercourse with that terrible pagan king. In other words, many Jewish scholars and Christian scholars, like, they failed their God-given task. See, again, this brings up the struggle we're all facing today. How does the people of God live right and live holy during dark pagan times where things are not clear? Well, let's all remember something. Let's just let the text have some authority. She's taken. As one scholar said this week that I read, this ain't the bachelorette. She's not there handing out roses. She is taken. Now, what's really sad is many, many people don't just criticize uh, her cousin, Mordecai. They criticize her. Some say, oh, what a compromised woman, so-called godly, but not really, going to a spa for a year and then giving herself to a pagan, no-character king. She doesn't follow God in the tough times. She's not holy enough. And others are like, actually, what a failure. Esther didn't stand for her rights like Vashti did. She could have been another woman's rights leader, a feminist before her time. So the left and the right both write her off as a sellout, but they miss it and they do terrible damage to the text. She's taken. She's not some hussy, and she's not some failed feminist icon. She's a woman with no power. But in the middle of that powerlessness, God's hand is still present. Something is going on here just larger than her. And God is working in the darkest and most wicked of times. Okay, the story continues. Esther had not revealed her nationality or family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Why? Could it lead to persecution? Could this hurt her chances with the king? Would her religious, ethnic calling and convictions be threatened? Well, as we'll see in the next few weeks, there is actual real hate against the Jews. And in this palace specifically, anti-Semitism is alive and well. And as we will find out specifically next week, the supernatural story behind the hate is even more telling. But for this moment, we're told, well, nothing else. But since we know the end of the story, we know God has organized this moment has placed her in this harem to save his people and save the world. Silence is not absence. So, 12 months at the spa, for real. Yeah, it's Sephora on steroids. It's real. And then during that time, if you read closely, the real character of Esther appears. As one person pointed out, she's elegant. She's beautiful. She is charming. She's teachable. She's modest. She's authentic. She's smart. She's aware She's kind. Well, after that moment, she goes to the king. Verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the nobles and all the officials, and he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces, distributed gifts with liberality. And when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther, here it is repeated again, had kept secret 
her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai told her to do so. For she continued following Mordecai's instructions as he had, as she had done when he was bringing her up. So watch this. A follower of the true living God, one who grew up praying and listening to God's law in her house, is now at the heart of the largest pagan Roman empire, and no one really knows who she is except her cousin. Now, she's not alone. He's there at the city gate. Now, don't misread that. This is not some weird guy, cringy guy, hanging out all the time outside of the king's gate uninvited. That phrase is an ancient way of saying he had an official position. When you sat at the gate, you had a formal place within the Persian court. He was part of the royal administration. He was connected to the running of the government. He was a bureaucrat, which gave him access to Esther. Now, what's a crazy, I found this out this week, is that actual gate complex has been discovered in Susa and fully excavated. So Mordecai is at court and at the gate doing his job in this large complex. Now, not only is he supporting and watching out for his cousin Esther, but God had placed him in that job to achieve God's will also. And one day, he was in the right place at the right time and overheard something. Verse 21. Well, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, two of king, the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate the king. Mordecai find, found out about the plot, told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, and gave credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Oh, good morning. Now, assassinations were common. This very king, if you read history, was assassinated by his own bodyguard later in his life. But the point is, at this moment, this plot is uncovered. The queen gets the information from Mordecai. The king is saved. And then Mordecai gets the credit. Now, the soldiers are executed in the most violent public of ways, and their bodies are left out to basically say, don't you dare try this. This will happen to you. All of this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Okay, ready? Why was Mordecai at the right place at the right time to overhear this very plot? Why was Esther the exile? Esther the forced immigrant? Esther the orphan? Esther with no rights? Esther the hidden Jew raised up as the queen of the largest empire of its day? Because God is at work. God is working when it seems like he's not. God is preparing for the greater moment. When all seems wrong, God is working. When all evil is taking around you, God is working. God is, God is inviting his people to rest in his sovereignty, which, oh, just as a side note, is what God is inviting Sanctus Church to do, you to do, the church in Canada to do. I love what Karen Jobs once wrote. He said, she said, the author of Esther knows the end of the story before he begins to tell it. He knows that God did not come down to save his people from the crushing power of the Persian Empire like he did with the Egyptians, yet God's people were, oh, saved. The same events that led to their possible destruction also opened the way for salvation. It's often said that God works in mysterious ways, and the author of the book of Esther begins to show us how mysterious those ways can truly be. So if God could work in a military-drenched, power-hungry, carnal, drunk, politically powerful, spiritually dark time, 
that Esther lived in, then he could be working in our post-Christian, post-secular, neo-pagan, not sure what's about to happen next moment in Canada, right? Oh, let me rephrase it a different way. No, no, he is working in our world and in Canada, in your life, right? See, I believe in the sovereignty of God in this moment, in my life, in this church's life, and in the country of Canada. Do you? And even if you intellectually say, yeah, yeah, I believe that God's in charge and he's, yeah, but do you behave? Do you live like it? Oh, oh, here's something even more important. Have you ever said it out loud? I know it's weird. For some reason, and maybe it's a North American thing, I'm not sure, but we feel if we don't say it out loud, it's not true or doesn't have as much effect. When is the last time you actually said out loud, I've been placed by God to live in Canada in this moment? Uh, when is the last time you said, we have been placed here in Canada for this moment? When's the last time you said, we here at Sanctus Church have been placed in the greater Toronto area for this moment? There's a reason why we're here now, in this moment, which by the way, we don't know how this moment's going to go. This moment might tip to a spiritual winter we have never experienced in Canada or this moment might tip towards a renewal and a revival that actually we have never experienced in our country's history. But in the middle of that tipping moment, remember, God is. Or let me put it for you. You, we are myrtle in this moment. Years ago, I love when one pastor wrote, God's people are not excluded from high places because of handicap." or hardship. Esther was a Jew exiled in a foreign land. She's an orphan. She's light years removed from Persian nobility. Yet none of that kept God from exalting her to the position that God wanted her to be in. He says, this makes me think of another example of such an exaltation. Years later, when a young couple made a long journey from their hometown, found no place to stay, and in the middle of the night caused angels to declare Emmanuel, God with us, see Joseph and Mary. The vehicles for the birth of the Messiah did not come from wealth or nobility, not from an earthly perspective, but their son became the true king of kings and the Lord of lords. So what do we do now? And if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, you need to go back because I outlined the moment, mapped it out for us where we're at. Do we panic more, post more, argue more? No, actually, we need to focus more. We need to say, God is in control. He's placed me here and now. Literally, we need to say that out loud. But then we need to put our focus on Jesus, who's the better king. We need to spend more time working on the kingdom, which is the better kingdom. But then we need to go back to Jesus, the better king of the better kingdom that lasts, and say to him in this moment where we're all scared and tired and exhausted and afraid and not sure what to do next and not gonna, we need to say, would you, God, remind me from heaven's view of my real identity? What is my God-given name? Not, not my pagan name, my God-given identity. What have you forged in my history? How do you call me Myrtle in 2021 today? And the answer is, if you are a Christian and you are living in this moment, 
the answer for your identity, which is the grounding for how you think and act in this very divisive moment, comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount from the better king as he's outlining the better kingdom. And what did he say you actually are? Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth. Actually, this reads, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You along among thousands of claims and thoughts and worldviews and billions of people, you, if you're a Christian, you alone are the salt of the earth. Really? Yes. In that culture, the main use for salt was to preserve food. Think about it. There's no ice-making machines, no fridges, no freezers, nothing. The only way to deal with decay and decomposition, the only to deal, way to deal with swarms of flies is to rub food with salt or soak meat in a solution of salt. This is what you actually are and called to be in this pagan moment. This is actually what, actually what you already are now. You are myrtle, you are salt. Jesus, of course, is offending and peeling back the veneer of civility. Jesus reminds us that the world is always heading towards decomposition. It's always spiritually rotting. It's always exalting pride and self-exaltation. And every generation is born spiritually dead. The world is a place, Canada is a place, where beliefs and morals are always changing on the whim of whoever is influencing in the moment. But Jesus says, just like Esther in her day, you in your day, you're part of the better kingdom, and by your presence, you slow down the rot. You bring holiness, you bring mercy, you bring meekness, you bring honesty, you bring integrity, you stand for God's revealed truth out of the scriptures, you stand for the vulnerable, you love, you declare Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life for forgiveness and salvation. You are the salt of the earth. Every historian will tell you that when Christians have chosen in, in dark pagan times to be faithful, society is affected in the most dramatic of ways. Legally, socially, spiritually, familially, neighborhood, art, culture, it changes. But see, this is the moment that we are now facing. What are we going to really be like in the next decade? Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Salt can't stop being salt scientifically. It's an incredibly stable thing. But when salt gets mixed with dirt, it loses the power to do the thing it's supposed to do. You can't use it to spice food or bring out flavor or preserve. When salt gets compromised, the salt mixes up and then it's thrown out. And you know the crazy thing is? When you throw salt out, what does it end up doing? For we who live in Canada, we know this because every winter we have to salt things. When you put salt down, it kills plants. It sterilizes soil. It does the opposite of its purpose. Think about church history. Where are all the amazing churches in North Africa? Where Augustine came from? Where are the grand moves of God that Paul was writing to in modern day Turkey? Look around in Canada, like we were talking about last week. Hundreds and hundreds of churches that a hundred years ago had massive Sunday schools and thousands of baptisms or yoga studios and community playhouses and homes for the wealthy and our mosques and temples. Each generation of Jesus followers must make the decision. God has no grandchildren. What each generation chooses to do in the church will either last or will produce nothing and it will die. You, 
We, we are the salt of the earth. We create thirst for people, Jesus says. You stop the tide of darkness by your very lives. You begin to redeem culture. But then Jesus says, don't compromise. Don't play with evil. Don't buy in and start kissing the promises of the right wing or the left wing. Christian nationalism, like we talked about last week, or the progressive agenda where I get to decide what's right and wrong by what I feel or where the culture is going. We are not the authorities on ourselves. And we are not the authority of this nation as God is. Don't compromise. Don't play with evil. Don't mix salt with sin. Be meek. Be meek. Be pure in heart. Be merciful. Mourn over your sin. Don't forget how poor poor we really all were. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. That is who you are. But not only that, you and you alone are the light of the world. Dr. Barnhouse years ago used this amazing image of the moon. He says the light never comes from us. Like the moon, we only reflect the light of the sun. The light is not our own, it's another's. Another person reflecting on this idea said, sometimes the church is like a full harvest moon, large and dazzling and illuminating and powerful. And other times we're like a moon barely seen through the clouds. Sometimes we're like a thumbnail moon, almost giving no light, but it's light. Think about the craziness of this. To Jesus' audience, he is saying his followers are the light of the world, not the temple, not the Torah, not the Pharisees, not the Jewish people, us broken up, confused Christian people. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do, put, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand to give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The Greek phrase for good works here is actually quite unique. It means attractive and beautiful. In other words, every single Christian is called to be involved in good deeds, things that bring the glory of God. Being salt and light holds back darkness. Good deeds builds the bridge to have the conversation about the author of the kingdom we belong to. Again, I know these are confusing, tiring times. I know that we feel lost. Or, or trying to create something that maybe not be, m- might not be right. A lot of us feel like Esther in a foreign place. Wow, in a harem about having, whoa, like out of control, right? Yeah. And yet, Esther's real name was Hadassah. God's myrtle. You are the salt and the light of the world in this moment. So what's the takeaway as we keep trying to understand what God's trying to teach us in this moment? Well, number one, I'm going to encourage all of you to do something. And I'm really asking you to do this. I would like you this week out loud, literally out loud. I mean, you don't have to yell it. To say, I believe in the sovereignty of God over my life. Literally say that. I believe in the sovereignty of God over my family. I believe in the sovereignty of God over Canada in this moment. And then I'd like you to say out loud, I have been placed here by God's hand like Esther was placed in her day. I think we need to recapture that we're not just a random mistake floating through history. God decided that you would move here or be born here in this moment to belong to the church, whether Sanctus Church or another church in Canada. In this moment, God has placed you here. Number two, 
Take some time this week to wrestle. Do you really believe that your true identity is salt and light? Or are you putting your identity in other things, ethnicity, political views, all of it? No, no. Salt and light. Here's another thing you might want to do. Some of you might want to say, Holy Spirit, where have I mixed sand with salt? Where have I done that politically, sexually, relationally, financially, intellectually? Like, just say, can you show me where I'm mixing sand and salt, where I'm actually becoming now not effective? And I'm becoming, I'm actually starting to sterilize and kill things. That I'm supposed to bring. Just ask him. But here's the last thing. What good deed are you going to do this week? Very simple thing, not a huge gesture. What good deed or deeds are you going to do simply in the name of Jesus to love your neighbor, to show them that God cares, to open up a conversation about the better king and the better kingdom? Remember, through our good deeds, not our rhetoric, through our good deeds, not our posting, through our good deeds, not our anti, through our good deeds, our neighbors will praise the God that we know in heaven. So, God of Esther, God of Mordecai, found fully in the face and work and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, revealed by the Holy Spirit. We just want to say, we who belong to Sanctus Church, but beyond these things. One, we believe you're in charge and you're good. And we acknowledge that you knew everything that we're facing was going to come. And we say out loud, we have been placed here. Two, Holy Spirit, would you begin to help people see their identity as salt and light in a new way? Anyone who needs to deal with sand and salt mixing, would you begin to clean that out? And sometimes it's so close and we can't see the difference. We're going to actually need the Holy Spirit to speak to us directly. And then lastly, we as a church ask that we would have the opportunity to be what we're called to be in this moment and to do the good deeds that will bring life and salvation. Continue to sustain this church. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit prays for us and Jesus prays for us all the time. Jesus and Holy Spirit, your perfect prayers for us personally, for our family, and for this church to be faithful in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.